Well, good evening. It's good to see each one this evening. <clears throat> I appreciate the opportunity to be able to hopefully present the lesson tonight. <clears throat> I want to say uh, Brian's sermon this morning was uh, very good. I like when you can take nature itself and learn lessons from it. And of course, that's what Paul writes in Romans, the first chapter, about the fact that God exists. We're able to... We should be able to know that God exists by looking around at the things that we see in nature. And by doing that, it just puzzles me how people can believe in such a thing as evolution. But uh, a very good lesson this morning from Brian. I hope you were here. Most of us were here, but there may have been someone here tonight that was not here this morning. Uh, it was a very good lesson. You know, the Bible tells us about God's love in just numerous verses in different ways. And tonight we're going to look at the love of God as seen through the church. Now I know we've heard a lot of lessons about the church. We know a lot about the church. But oftentimes we can get kind of used to those things without really looking a little bit deeper. And the world does not really understand the church. They think that they can separate Christ in the church or God in the church. And I understand where they're coming from. They're looking at the church as a man-made institution in organized religion. And they have problems with that, the things that they see. And I understand that. I, have, I agree in some areas with them about organized religion. But of course, the church of the Bible is not what they see. They don't understand what the Bible teaches about the church. But when we look at the church, do we look at God's love through the church? Oftentimes we look at God's love, but how often do we really key in on God's love through the church? And of course it takes knowing from beginning to end about the church, about what the Scriptures teach, and so on and so forth, for us to really understand that. We know in John 3.16, which is a verse that is uh, very well known, and it says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. A lot of people read that verse and they see that statement, God so loved the world. That's true. But yet, that still does not help them understand the church. Oftentimes, they feel that uh, looking at it from the organized religion point of view, that the church is not necessary that there really isn't a connection there. But if you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, you can't help but read about the church. But if we go all the way back to the beginning and we see God's love, if we take John 3.16 where it says God so loved the world, we go all the way back even before the world was created. We want to look at the fact that God had enough love for man to bring about the church when the time was right. We want to go back all the way to the beginning. We're told in Ephesians the third chapter and verse 11 that the church was in, in the mind of God from eternity. It talks about the eternal purpose, according to the eternal purpose of God. And if you back up and read verse 10 there, it talks about the manifold wisdom of God being made known by the church and talking about the church being His eternal purpose. So that shows God's love from the very beginning. Before the church was actually established, we see that it was in God's plan 
Although those that, that want to teach the premillennial view says that the church was an afterthought. Well, there's no way you can come up with that if you read and understand the Scriptures correctly. It came about by people not understanding the Scriptures. But when we look at that, Ephesians 3.11, when Paul says that, he shows us that it was from the very beginning. It was in God's mind. There never was a time that it was not in God's mind. Now, God's existence, when He, you know, we as humans have time frames, and we think in time frames of when something begins and something ends. It is hard for us to understand the concept that God has always been. But yet we can know for surely that it was an eternal purpose for the church and that God had always had that plan in His mind and in His heart. Also, when Peter tells us that it was from the very beginning before the foundation of the world, we look at 1 Peter 1.20, as he talks about Christ, he says Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God created the world, Christ was already in the plan to come and establish the church. God's love is infinite. We don't understand God's love completely. Especially when we look around at our world and we see all the evil things in the world, we look at it from a human standpoint and say, well, how could God you know, continue to let things go on? We see all this evil and things in the world. How could God continue to go on? Well, we're told that God is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 God doesn't want anybody to perish. So what kind of love does that say that God has for mankind? God's love goes all the way back. And we read from the very beginning, the first mention of the fact of having a Savior for mankind goes all the way back to Genesis, the third chapter, and verse 15, where shortly after the sin of Adam and Eve, and God is having that conversation with Satan or the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed and thy seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is the first prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. And yet it also is, if we want to look at it, the first prophecy concerning the church. Because you cannot separate Christ and the church. And a lot of people have said over the years, because they don't understand, you know, give me Christ or give me God, but not the church. Well, they don't understand that the church in the Bible is different from what they see in the world. Unless they know the true church. So it goes all the way back. The first prophecy concerning the church is the first prophecy concerning that of a Savior because you can't separate the two. Never have been, never will be able to. When we look at Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 1, uh, 22 and 23 where it says that Christ is the head of the church, the body, and the body is the church, and the church is the body. We see that that cannot be separated. But we see that it was an eternal purpose of God for the church. His love. And what this boils down to is if we go back and we think about, well, what was God's plan for mankind from the beginning of man's existence all the way to the time that He caused this world to an end? What was man going to do? How was He going to treat His people? God has always had a separate people. We look at the patriarchal age. We look at the fact... uh, before the flood, there were those that followed God. Yes, we look and there were only eight souls on the ark, but that doesn't mean that there were only eight righteous souls before that time. A lot of those people died off. 
before the flood ever came. There was a righteous line from Seth all the way up. So there were people who were God's people from the beginning. What about the law of Moses? God gave the, uh, the, the Jews a, a law that would separate them from the, the Gentiles. Not that the Gentiles didn't have an opportunity for salvation, but God needed a way to bring Christ into this world. He needed a way to do it, and that's what He chose. So, people talk about the Jews were God's chosen people. It wasn't because the Jews were better than anybody else. It was because God used them not only to bring Christ into this world, but also to use them as an example to the world for righteousness. So God has always had His people. And then the church is established and God still has His people. So God has loved man enough to always provide for Him. To always provide for His people. Especially in the spiritual blessing area. So we see that it was from the eternal purpose of God that man be separated from sin. We cannot be like the rest of the world. And we'll cover that a little bit later on in the lesson. But the prophecy of the church as a body is known in Scripture. In Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, this is, along with some other verses, showing the prophecy of the church. And, of course, there are those who, when they deny that the church was God's plan to begin with, they ignore this verse, or they either say that it doesn't mean what it means. But when we look at Isaiah, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah the second chapter because there's a couple of things here. It's going to tie into some of the prophecies over in the New Testament too. If there are so many prophecies concerning Christ, but in Isaiah the second chapter, verse two, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Now, verse 3 is a very important verse also, but we see in verse 2 that this is a prophecy concerning the church and the fact that the last part of that verse, all nations shall flow unto it, shows the fact that the church would be open to all people, no matter what nationality, no matter what color, what race, what economic situation, rich, poor, whatever, it would be open to all people. And of course, we know that back in that time, you had two main groups, Jew and Gentile, but yet... When it comes down to the bottom line, it's for everybody. But look at verse 3. Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What was the prophecy concerning the Gospel? That it would start from Jerusalem. Go to Luke the 24th chapter, and we read that, and we'll look at that a little bit later on. But... The fact is, this not only talks about the church, but it talks about the gospel and when it would begin. Uh, also, over in Daniel, the second chapter, verses 31 through 44, that whole section there, uh, talking about the coming of the kingdom. But in verse 44 itself, uh, it says, And in, these, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall be, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. A couple of phrases or a couple of statements in this one verse that's very important for a connection into the New Testament, where he says that it shall never be destroyed, and 
the last part it shall stand forever. Where do we read of that? Maybe not in those exact words. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? When He talked about that you know, uh, He would build His church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In other words, there's nothing Satan could do to prevent the Lord's church from being established. And it's not going to be destroyed. Nothing can destroy God's kingdom, the church. Now, man can damage it a lot, but a lot of times people, I know that we are the church and people associate the church with us, but when you look at the divine side of it, what God has created, man can't touch it. And we can do a lot of damage to the reputation and to God's Word, but man cannot touch the divine side of the church. But we see here that the prophecy of the church as a body uh, was prophesied. So the church was planned. It wasn't something that just happened on the spur of the moment. God's love for man and the redemption of man in the grand scheme of redemption, God's love is seen through the planning process of the church. Another thing that we see the love of God when it comes to the church is the fact that Christ died for the church. And we've already seen how the Bible tells us that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Well, the plan was to have Christ die for the sins of mankind. And the prophecies, I don't know how many prophecies there are concerning that, but there are just numerous prophecies concerning Christ going to the cross. Going back, once again, referencing Genesis 3.15. Also, what about the promise to Abraham? What promise did God make to Abraham about the coming of Christ? Well, didn't He say that from His seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Go back to Genesis the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 3, and also in Genesis 22.18. The promise to Abraham that one of his heirs would bless by his actions the world. And of course, if we go to Galatians, the third chapter, we read about Christ being that seed in order to bless all of mankind, giving mankind the opportunity for eternal salvation. Now, when we look at the fulfilling of these prophecies, uh, as I mentioned earlier, going to Luke, the 24th chapter. Uh, and, and one thing I love about the Word of God is how we can go from new to old, old to new, and we, we find the prophecies, we find the connections uh, left and right, dealing with uh, all things prophesied and the fulfillment of those prophecies. But we know that in Luke, the 24th chapter, and our Lord uh, is uh, confronting or having a discussion with uh, the apostles, there are some very important statements made by our Lord. And uh, usually we begin around verse 44, and that's where I'll begin. You can back up and read uh, a little bit farther uh, back uh, to get the whole context. But in verse 44, as Christ is speaking to them, He's saying, these were the prophecies. You know, oftentimes Christ say, and it is written. Or was it written? You know, phrases like that. But in Luke 24, He says unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning Me. 
Once again, talking about all those prophecies concerning Him. Now, they probably did not understand everything that He was talking about or they would not have had to be guided into all truth or brought into remembrance of what they had been taught. But He goes on to say in verse 45, "...then opened He their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures." And He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This goes back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. But we see that Christ is making the point that all of this was prophesied. Nothing new. I don't understand how people can say, well... The Jews rejected Christ, so God had to come up with a plan B. How do you get that out of reading the Scriptures? Well, that's the problem. A lot of people don't read the Scriptures because oftentimes people who teach such things avoid <laughs> they avoid certain Scriptures because it doesn't go along with what they think or what they want to believe. But also, if you will, turn over to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Of course... 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the greatest chapters that we have concerning the resurrection. But it's important to understand what Paul says in the beginning. As you get toward the end of the chapter, it talks more about the resurrection and so on and so forth and in the fact of us uh, being in a, a carnal body and taking on immortality and so on and so forth. But here we see in verses 3 and 4, once again, those prophecies concerning Christ and how they were fulfilled. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered, this is Paul, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Once again, Christ dying for the church. There was never any question about His role as Lord and Savior for mankind and what He was going to do to establish the church. Also in Ephesians 5.25, Paul talks about that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Now, how could Christ and how could Paul say that Christ gave Himself for the church and He died on that cross if that wasn't part of the plan? That if the church didn't matter, if the church was an afterthought, it doesn't connect. But also to show God's love and to, to point out God's love for us, Paul says in Romans 5.8 that but God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, notice why he says there, while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died for us. Now, it's hard to know exactly how God viewed man when He looked down and how He views sin on us. We know God loves us. But yet here, He sent His only begotten Son to die, not only for our sins, but to establish the church. Now, there's going to be a, we're going to look at here in a minute the church and really what it's about. There, are, I don't know how many lessons that we could really come up with dealing with what the church really means to us in God's plan of redemption. Really, what it means. We'll try to cover a few of those points here in a few minutes, but we see that. Christ died for the church. That was the plan from the very beginning. It wasn't something that just happened. Going all the way back before the foundation of the world, 
And Peter says Christ was foreordained. That means there was a reason for doing that. What reason was there to foreordain Christ? The reason was for Him to go to the cross to establish the church, to die for the sins of mankind. He was foreordained. He was the one chosen and picked, and the plan revolved around Him. So the love of God for mankind can be seen through the church, through the dying of Christ for the church. Another one we can look at is the fact of really what is the church. We can see the love of God for mankind because the saved are in the church. This is where we get to the separation part. talked about how God's people have always been a separate people from the very beginning. And it would be no different after the crucifixion of Christ. As a matter of fact, I think it would be magnified. One reason is because there's no barriers anymore. The gospel, the law of Christ, took down that middle wall of partition that divided Jew and Gentile. So now there's no middle wall of partition. It is for everyone. But in Acts 2, in verse 47, we're all familiar with that, where it says that God added to the church daily such as should be saved. So where are the saved? In the church. Now, is the church different from the world? Absolutely. We'll see that in a minute. So, God's love prepared a place for His obedient children to be while we live in this world. It goes all the way back to the beginning. God wanted us to be separate from the world. Now, we can be in the church which separates us. And of course, a lot of people would, would look at that as uh, being kind of arrogant. As I mentioned this morning in class, some people... Uh, look down on us, think we're arrogant because we say there's only one church. I don't see how you could read the Bible correctly and come away with any other conclusion, but there is only one church. Now, man has perverted religion. The Catholic Church has convinced the world that they are the church of the Bible and that they have given the Bible to the world. And there are so many people that believe that they don't understand what the true church is. And I don't mean any disrespect to anyone, but when these scholars stand up and these theologians, and they've got five or six, seven different initials out there by their names because they've earned doctorates in religion or PhDs in religions, and they don't even know what the true church is. Something's wrong. Everyone here tonight is, is proof that you don't have to, to have a Ph.D. to understand what the church is. But when we look at the saved or in the church, that is a place that God created for His people to be, is in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved... It is the power of God. Now Paul tells us something right there. He says we can know that we're saved. He says for those of us, for us who are saved, not going to be saved, now we won't realize our salvation, permanent salvation, eternal salvation, until we go to judgment. But we are in a state of salvation. We are saved now. 
Paul says that, and there are other verses that, that back that up. So we can know we are saved. He says it very plainly, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Where are the saved? The saved in the church. The word ecclesia means called out. And if you take that very simple definition and look at it and realize that we're called out from the world, it shows that we are a separate people from the world. We should be. Paul says we become new creatures when we obey the gospel. No longer the same as the world. No longer like the rest of the world and what we do. We're called to be saints, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1-2. Called to be saints. Everybody loves the word saint. You know, you can mention the word saint usually, and you know, people have a good impression in their mind of what a saint is. But the biblical definition of saint is one who is a member of the body of Christ. Not someone who has gone through sainthood by some organization. God doesn't come down and make people a saint here and a saint there. I don't know how many different uh, church buildings I have seen that they were named after some saint. In some of the, the King James Bible, if you look at the heading of a book, it'll say St. John. Yeah. But we understand that we are called out. We're called out into the eternal glory by Christ, 1 Peter 5.10. The saved are separated from the world. Why? Because the world's lost. If we're not saved, we're still part of the world. We're called to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Come out from among them and be ye separate. Why? Because God has given us a wonderful blessing to, be, to have the opportunity to be separated from the world of sin. And that is in the church. Uh, if you go and you read First uh, Peter and, and some of the names, uh, he, he talks about, or he gives names that the brethren are really called. Uh, these are just descriptive. But I think they're very important descriptive terms. He says that we're a holy priesthood. We are priests. Not like the religious world. But we are priests of God. Everyone is on the same level. You don't find that in the religious world. But we being a holy priesthood, we're all priests. Same level. We're a chosen generation. Why? Because God chose us. Not predestinated us in the sense that we have been luckier than others. That God chose us whether we wanted to be chosen or not. He has chosen us. He has prepared the way of salvation. He has planned it. He has brought it to fruition. And therefore, we can be a member of the body of Christ. And we can be a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Peculiar people. Now, Peter says all that in one chapter. We're different from the world. God's love has afforded us the opportunity to be separated from a world of sin and to be able to be forgiven of our sins as we live throughout our lives as long as we are faithful. Go to 1 John 1.7-9 through 9, and we find that as Christians when we do sin, we can be forgiven. But we need to be walking in the light 
so that that blood of Christ can continually cleanse us. So, God's love is shown to us through the church because it is the place where the saved are. And then the last one, which will be the most important when it happens, is the delivery of the church, the delivery of the kingdom, back to God at the end when God destroys this earth. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15.24. He says, Then cometh the end when He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. The kingdom, the church. God's love is shown to us through the kingdom, the church. And as Paul says, we've been translated into the kingdom. He talks about Colossians. Romans 6.23 is, is a very uh, familiar verse with many. For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life. God gives us that gift because of His love. But it's not a gift that is given and we don't have to do anything for it as some people teach. We have to accept God's terms. How can God give us eternal salvation if we're rejecting His Word? In order for us to reject the terms, we reject the Word. We reject God. And that's why Jesus said, He that rejecteth Me and receiveth not My words hath one that judgeth Him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge Him in the last day. Because Christ is letting us know that we can't reject God's Word and expect to go to heaven. You know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I understand that. So we see that the delivery of the church will be the culminating act of God's love in this world and in between ready for that eternal world. Because for those who have obeyed God's Word, those who have lived faithfully, God's love is going to give them eternal life. I know there are other things that we could have looked at tonight to show God's love through the church, but I think these are some of the uh, good foundational ones that we can look at and we can continue to study to see how God's love, and, and it is hard for us to understand sometimes how God can love us uh, the way that He does. Uh, sending Christ to that cross to die that horrible death, uh, you know, it's just hard to explain that kind of love. You may be able to, but sometimes it's hard for me to be able to explain it. Through God's love in the church, we'll have eternal life. Because eternal life is only through Christ, and the only way you can get through Christ, uh, get to Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Galatians 3, 26-27 says that uh, we're baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. That is the only way that we get into Christ is to be baptized into Him. But before that, we have to make uh, sure that we're obeying the other requirements. And People may not like to hear that word requirement, especially when you deal with God's love, but they are. God requires us to Hear the Word. Believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He requires us to repent. He requires us to confess. And then He requires us to be baptized for eternal salvation. That puts us into the body of Christ. If you're not in the body of Christ, you can't have eternal salvation. It's not that God's 
doesn't love people, knowing that there will be those that will not follow this, God loves all people and presents the gospel invitation to all people. If you're here tonight and never have rendered obedience into the requirements that I just mentioned, you need to do that because you stand outside the body of Christ not having done that. And the only way to be put into Christ is to follow God's commandments. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. See, your decision tonight if you have not done that. We, cry, we, we pray that you'll make that right decision. And as a child of God, if you need to come forward tonight uh, for whatever reason, you know that this time is important for you as well, being a child of God, uh, to uh, get your heart right with God if it needs to be at this time. But we pray that you'll come as we stand and sing. <laughs>